As we continue on uh, reading through the Bible in, in eight months here, uh, most of our uh, weeks or reading this week has been about uh, David. And as we read through some of these things, a lot of times you notice, and, and this doesn't just apply to David, but this applies to really any of these old stories, our perception of what of, of the story and our interpretation of the story depends on a lot of a lot of things that we're as we're reading that we're not really paying attention to we're not really aware that that we're interpreting through a lens and sometimes that lens is not very accurate because of the method of interpretation so so for example one of the things that shapes our understanding of things is societal structure we we tend to interpret things as though uh, it would be happening now. Uh, we we think, you know, based on the way I grew up, and we kind of read that societal structure into the text. Uh, and sometimes it's true. Sometimes people are people, no matter what generation, what year, what what place they're born in. It's just people are people. But um, sometimes there are societal structures that are different. Uh, let me give you an example, and this is not from this week's, uh, or, or from the story that we're going to be doing today, but in fact, this is not even the only time this has happened in the Bible. It happened again with Samson, um, if you remember that. But there's a, this is a thing that happened where a father, remember that they do arranged marriages back then, and we don't really have that in our society. They did arranged marriages, but they did something beyond just arranging the marriage, uh, if, that's, if that's not enough for you. We have a couple of times in the Bible, and I assume it's not the only time that this ever happened, these two times in, in the history of man, that a father who gave his daughter in marriage decided to take her back um, and, and give it to a best man in, in Samson's case. And, uh, you know, in our societal structure, you know, that wouldn't happen. And in fact, we like to think We'd like to think anyway, I don't know if we would actually do this, we'd like to think that if, if dad-in-law came to me and said, sorry, um, but I'm taking, taking your wife and, and I'm going to give her to your best man or whatever, that would say, listen, uh, I, I've got a blunt instrument, I, I, don't, I don't own a gun, so, so I would say, I, I have a blunt instrument in my closet and if you don't get off of my lawn, I'm going to get it out. Right? That's the way I'd like, now, maybe if he was the king or the president or something, I, I wouldn't really do that because he'd probably have like a security detail and things like that. So, so in this modern societal structure, I probably wouldn't do that. But I'd like to think that I would because I interpret things through my societal structure. Now, uh, that, that's one case where we, where we look at this. Another thing that shapes your understanding of the events that happened Believe it or not, our children's Bible. Children's Bibles shape your understanding, especially if you were raised in the church. You know, and, and these things get how old? And this is going to touch the story that we're we're going to. How old was David? Right when when we when we look at uh, the story uh, in First Samuel chapter seventeen. That's where we're going to be today. How old was David? In the story of David and Goliath, how old was he? Right? You picture, don't you picture a little, little kid? No, I don't think a little kid could swing a rock fast enough to hurt much of anything. Well, we, we picture, and I realize that there was probably some miraculous help in this, or whatever, but 
We picture a little kid. David wasn't a little kid. Why do we picture David as a little kid? Well, here we go. I just I collected these books from downstairs uh, during this week, uh, and and just here's a couple of them. Uh, you can see there. There you go. Um, he's a little older than this one, but still he's he about 12 years old. Here we go. Uh, here's another one. Uh, look at this. Here we go. About about seven years old, and then this one about the same. Right. About seven years old. Uh, David. Uh, when in se- somewhere between seven and twelve, but he wasn't. But he wasn't. He was. He was old enough to travel long distance on his own to, you know, bringing supplies and 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 bringing messages from his dad. So so he wasn't seven to twelve. You know, he was probably more like sixteen to eighteen, somewhere in that range. Uh, as he's as he's doing this. Um, by the way, his, the, the, the Bible says that his father was an old man. We're going to talk about, a little bit about that. So his brothers are significantly probably older than him. Uh, they're in the military and things like that. So, uh, but we look at the children's Bible and those things get subconsciously planted in our brain and we interpret things. Here's, here's another thing. Go, go back into your Bible and go back into the New Testament. Here's another one. Uh, and look at, look at Paul. Paul was bald. Right, you can't find a, a children's Bible or a, Bible, a illustrated Bible that does not depict the Apostle Paul with hair. And, and, and this is what's funny is this directly disagrees with the Bible because the Bible tells us in the Book of Acts that that he went to Centria and had his head shaved uh, because he was keeping a vow. Right, we talked about that. Uh, a few a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the Nazarite vow, right? And uh, so, so it's just kind of some interesting things that uh, that we picture because of children's Bibles. But hey, Paul was bald. Don't question that. We tend to. I don't know if this is a word. If it's not, but uh, I'm, I'm going to make it up now. Uh, mythologize the stories. We like everything to be clearly defined. I don't like, when we watch movies, I don't like, um, I, I like good guys and bad guys. Right? I want my good guys to be good, and I want my bad guys to be bad, and I don't want them to mix. And I, I can't stand movies where, where you have the bad guy who's really bad the whole time, and then, then in the last scene or two, he really, he's good. He's, he's just good now, and, he, and, and they've convinced him, and he's good, and he's all sorry. And I, I hate those. And, and so when we... Uh, when we read some of these stories, we mythologize these these men. We we make them perhaps better than they were, and we make the bad guys worse than they were. Uh, when in reality, there, there's usually a little mix. Our heroes aren't so pure as we'd like them to be, and and sometimes our villains are are a little mixed. They have some, uh, you know, Saul has some noble moments, but he's a generally bad person. But he's not always bad. We're going to read a story in chapter 17. It illustrates some of this of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to be reading a little bit longer of a text. Hope you don't mind reading longer texts of the Bible. <laughs> I assume by now you're getting a little used to that. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they encamped between Soko and, and Azekah in Ephes Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up uh, in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And the 
uh, the valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That uh, works out to about nine foot uh, seven, something like that. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. I don't know what a weaver's beam, but it, 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 what it is, but it sounds pretty thick. sounds pretty big. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. I, really, I, don't, I don't know what a shekel is. I'm sure I could do some math and, and figure that out. But all of this just, whatever it is, it sounds like it weighed quite a bit. Pretty impressive. And he had a shield bearer that went in front of him. And he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come up to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Aren't you the servants of Saul? So choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. The Philistines said, I defy the armies this day. Uh, the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So when Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You know, and, and we're going to continue on in this. I just want to stop. You know, it seems to me that we could save a lot of bloodshed. Uh, we, could, we could save a lot of wars if we just say, all right, South Korea or, or North Korea, excuse me, North Korea. Why don't you just send us one guy? Send us one guy. We'll send you, you know, uh, we'll send Rambo or whoever. And we'll just have one guy versus one guy. And whoever, if, if we win, you give up your nukes and... We could we could have we could have had a lot more peace in the world. Okay, uh, Putin. Uh, we're gonna have Putin versus you know Trump. Uh, whoever whoever comes out and and we'll we'll serve. I don't know if I like that one, but um, you know this would save I think a lot of a lot of problems if if we would have this this type of a an idea, this kind of a structure. But uh, but we don't. Um, now David was the son of that. Ephrathite of Bethlehem of Judah, uh, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons. And the man was old and advanced in years in the days of Saul. And three oldest sons of Jesse had gone out to follow Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons were Eliab, the firstborn next to him, of Minadab, and the third was Shammah. David <clears throat> was the youngest, and the three followed Saul. The three oldest followed Saul, but David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself for forty days, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son David, Now take for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses uh, to the captain of their thousand and see how their brothers fare and bring back news of, about them. So Saul and all they had, uh, and now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, uh, the, as the camp of the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. And Israel and the Philistines had drawn up for battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand uh, of the supply keeper and ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, <clears throat> there was a champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to these same words that he had sp spoken already. So David heard them, 
And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And so the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will give great riches. Even his daughter and his father's house will uh, be exempt from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for this man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, Well, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. So now Eliab, his oldest brother, when he spoke to the men, and uh, Eliab's anger was aroused against David. He said, Why do you come down here? Who did you leave those sheep with in the wilderness? I know you're proud and insolence of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him towards another and said the same thing. And these people answered him just like the first ones did. Now, when the words which David spoken were heard, they reported him to Saul. So he sent for him, and David said to Saul, Don't let anyone's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go to the Philistine and fight with him. You're just a young boy. You're only seven years old. And a man of war, he's a man of war from his youth. So David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from the mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by uh, his beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed a lion and a bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine is going to be just like one of those because he's defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said to uh, the, the Lord who, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord will be with you. So Saul put his armor on David and a bronze helmet on his head and he put a coat of mail on him. David fastened the sword to his armor and he tried to walk, but he couldn't. And David said to Saul, I can't walk with these, I've not tested them. So David took them off. And he took his staff in his hand and he chose five stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling was in his hand. And he came close to the Philistine. The Philistine came and got closer to David. And the man who carried the shield went in front of him. And when the Philistine looked around and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth. But he was good looking. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? You come to me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come on, I'm going to give your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, Oh, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin. But I come to you in the name of God, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down. And I will take your head off of you. And this day I will give your dead carcass, the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines, to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, so that the, all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And when he, all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with a sword and spear. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And so it was when the Philistine came a little closer to meet David, that David ran towards the enemy to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine right in the head. 
So the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. And so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So therefore, he ran over and took the Philistine's sword, pulled it out of the sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they ran away. We are impressed at the courage of David. Now, I don't know if it is so much his courage that we are impressed with, or uh, if there's some other things. David is incredulous when we, when we first see David. He's, he's just, he's dumbstruck by his brother's cowardice. They have no decisiveness, even Saul. They're just sitting around not knowing what to do. Now, Saul is not Goliath, but he's the tallest man there. The, the Bible says that when he, was, when he was chosen as king, he was head and shoulders above the rest of the people. Now, I realize, being a Jew, that, that these are Jewish people. That's one of those things that probably culturally hasn't changed you know, all too much. But, uh, but still to be head and shoulders above him, I figure he's, you know, he's got to be 6'7", 6'8", somewhere in there. At least he's, he's a decent size. He's a decent size that, that David can't even really move around in the armor, even as a 17 or 18-year-old boy. He, he's, you know, he's, he's strong enough to, to, uh, to kill a bear and a lion. And yet this armor is a little bit much for him. So, so I know that Saul was, was something of, of uh, some type of physical specimen. Something to be a little bit oppressive. And yet he still sits there in his throne room, in his tent. And, uh, and he's basically a wimp. And probably all of us would be too if we were in that situation. But, but David can't believe that, that these people who are trained for this... These soldiers, these, this king, haven't done anything. He's incredulous. As I said, somewhere we decided that he was about six years old, but he's not. But I don't think, when we talk about mythologizing our, our heroes, and we think that David was unafraid. I don't think David was unafraid. I, I, I don't think it's physically possible to stare at someone who's nine foot six and heavily armed and not have a certain amount of trepidation as you get a little closer to them. I don't think that's physically possible. But what I do think is that it is possible to have other impulses that override that fear, that first initial emotional response. And that's what we're going to look at. What it was that drove David to do what he did. The first thing I want you to notice comes from his passion. To have a passion. It overcomes other things. To understand this story, I think we need to understand David's personal identity. Now, we know that he's young, right? And so he's got that particular obstacle. Even if, I mean, he's not old enough really to be in the military yet. Uh, military, you started at 20 back then, not 18. You started at 20 years old. 
Uh, he's too young to be in the military, so who knows? He could be 17, 18 years old, I don't know. But in all of these stories, another thing that you see that doesn't have to do with his age, there's this, there's this contempt of his brothers towards him. There's this, there's this relationship at play that I think there's a lot going on, more than just his age. There seems to be a general contempt for David. And I want to explore this a little bit. In the previous chapter, uh, Samuel came to Bethlehem. And in the previous chapter, it's talking about the anointing uh, of David. Right? And uh, so, so Samuel came... And I know this sounds disconnected, but we're just going to review it a little bit. Samuel came and it says the whole town was afraid. God had sent him to anoint David. Now, the town didn't know that, and, and Jesse didn't know that. The whole town's afraid. And the first thing everybody's thinking is, when a prophet came to your town, it was typically bad news. You did something bad, and someone's going to be punished. And God had, you know, God had to send... A prophet, and so so it appears that Samuel's kind of like a bad news prophet. Like uh, you went when Samuel said things, people tended to suffer uh, as as some sort of punishment. And so so here comes Samuel to their town, and they're all scared. Like, what do we do now? I don't know. What do we do? Someone did something. And he goes, "I got to see Jesse." And everyone's, "Oh no, look out!" Oh no, I'm just going to sacrifice with him. Yeah, sure you are. Something happened. What did Jesse do? Now. <clears throat> When, uh, when, you, when you're really afraid of somebody, you're really scared of them. And they say, listen, I want you to do this thing. If you're really scared of them, you do exactly what they say. And here's what happens. Jesse comes in. And you, or, or Samuel comes in and here's Jesse. And he says, I want you to get all your sons. Oh, no. All of my sons. Get all of your sons. No, he doesn't know. Jesse doesn't know at this point what his son... He's thinking, who knows what, what's happened? Have they done something bad? Who knows what they've done? Jesse's not going to be arguing. Jesse's not going to be saying, you know what, I'm going to keep this guy over here, or this guy over there. I like these sons. No, he's going to do exactly what Samuel does. Why? Because he's scared. The whole town was scared. So he brings his sons in, and they're standing there, and you can just picture the scene. They're all nervous, like, well, I did something. You ever done that thing where, where, where you think you're in trouble, and you're not sure what for? And you, you go through this, like, panic mode. What did I do? And, and you actually are not in trouble, but you think you're in trouble? Uh, I've done this before, uh, and, and I'm, I'm, like, trying to go through, why in the world is this person calling me? It must be bad news. I must have done something. And I'm in trouble. And I'm, I'm mentally going through everything I could have done. Like, did they, what, what in the world, what did I do? And I'm really scared. And I can picture this scene because I've been in this, <laughs> I've been here. I think probably a lot of us have been here. And he says, these are all your sons? Yeah, okay. And he starts going through them. Now, he doesn't know, okay, so we're, we're picking a king. Is this, no, it's not this one. And he goes down the list. Oh, it must be this one. And he gets to the end, and obviously at some point in time, God has not given him the message, it's this one. And he's like, are these all your sons? Well, 
Well, there's one more. There's one more. Oh. Well, um, why don't you bring him in here? I, I, I need to see this one. And of course, it's David and he's anointed king. Why did a man who was afraid and doesn't know why? This is not a thing of, you know, Jesse knew that they were going to be picked as a king and, um, and said, well, it would never be David. I'm not going to bring him in. He was just told to bring his sons in, and yet he did not bring David in. Why didn't he bring David in? There's, there's a clue in the Bible. And because we want our heroes to be always great all the time, we don't want anything bad to be spoken about our heroes. We don't want to put them in any negative light. This verse has been changed to mean something else. And it's really straightforward. It's really straight and simple um, if we just read it. David wrote in his Psalms, in chapter 51 of the book of Psalms, he wrote, In sin, my mother conceived me. Isn't that a pretty simple statement? It is really not difficult to understand that David was illegitimate. David wasn't like the rest of his brothers. Now, I, I don't know if it was Jesse's wife who had an affair, and so it was not really Jesse's son, or uh, if, you know, if it was Jesse who had a concubine or a, or a girlfriend on the side. I don't know how that happened. But David was brought forth in iniquity and he was a little bit different from the rest of his brothers. And there's this little looking down on, on David that I can see starting from this point. He always had an inferiority complex, I'll bet. Always had to battle that. He has a personal identity to overcome. And that'll keep you down. If there's something negative about you that's just kind of always follows you, that'll keep you down. And his passion has to overcome that. He has physical limitations. He's young. When we read this story, we again read this with our cultural things in place. But we, when we read this story, the Bible says that, that Jesse was already a very old man. A very old man. That would explain why the different mother or what have you, it's very likely that, that Eliab is, and these, these three boys, these three older ones, uh, they could be as old as 50 or 60 themselves, the older brothers. That, that they're not really in the same age bracket. But, but because of our social structure where we, we tend to have a husband and a wife and a family, I mean, you tend to get married to people in the same age bracket. That was not always a thing. And so it's easy to see why, uh, why we would put our structure in this Bible. But if we look at it from the way things happened back then or the way family structure was then, that they... We're not in the same age bracket. He's got these physical limitations and they would look down on him. They'd look at him. They're already men. 
They probably already have families of their own. They probably have kids who are his age. And they look at him and say, who are you? And you're going to come in here and tell us how to, how to, how to fight and how to be soldiers and you're just, a, you just take care of the sheep for dad. That's your job. Where's the sheep anyway? You can't even handle that job. He has physical limitations. He has, he has these things to fight. His reputations and all this stuff. He's no physical match. And passion helps us overcome some of these things. Let me tell you a little story about me. A desire for something sometimes overcomes some physical limitations. And this is just in a natural sense. I'm not even talking about with a, with a supernatural passion or, or a, a great passion for some great profound thing, but just a simple natural desire sometimes helps you overcome things. And it, uh, we were on a trip and um, we'd go around the country when we would come back from Ukraine. And, and my wife, had uh, she'd had to have ear surgery. Uh, so she couldn't really come on a trip that I had to make um, and uh, she had to wait for her surgery for our daughter to be born. Uh, so, so right after the Adelaide was born, then she had the ear surgery. So she was recovering from basically everything. Uh, and, and so she couldn't really come on the trip with us, uh, or with me, I should say. So I drove around by myself. Now, she did have a cousin who was getting married in Oregon. So, uh, so she flew out um, to Las Vegas, uh, and we were going to meet up there because her she has family in Nevada. So we, we she did a little bit of the trip with me. She was kind of recuperated by the time I was over there. It was several several weeks after her surgery. She was good enough to travel, but she didn't want to travel a lot. So so we traveled up to Oregon where her where her cousin got married, and then she flew back. Uh, I had one more little stop uh, in Oregon uh, to to teach or preach at and um, and and to do you know the presentations for our ministry that we were. We were working with before I drove back, so I I finished. She flew back on a on a Monday, and I had one place to be on a Wednesday, and so on Thursday I started driving back from Oregon. I made it back to Rutland, Vermont, <clears throat> Saturday evening at around nine thirty, ten thirty. Now, if we do some math here. That's a, it's a just over a 3,000 mile trip. Um, according to Google Maps, if you travel at speed limit, um, then that should be, uh, you know, it, it should be like 60 something hours of driving time. Not, not including stops, not including anything. If you look at the time, that it took me to do it. I did it in, uh, in you know, subtract the time zones and everything because I lose time going east. I did it in 57 hours. That's 12 hours if you do the math. Uh, and I don't, I don't typically speed. I go about five miles an hour over or something like that. I just put it on cruise. I'm not, a, I'm not a speed demon anymore. And so, uh, if you subtract a couple of other things, like I, I ran the border accidentally, uh, going across from Detroit into Windsor, uh, and so there was a, about a two-hour stop uh, while, while the border guards um, uh, emptied out my car and went through everything. So we had that. I had, I had some rush hour traffic. on. By the time that got over, I had, I had some rush hour on the bridge back over to Buffalo. And, and just, what happened? I didn't sleep. That's what happened. I didn't sleep except for, I think, in Montana. Somewhere in Montana I slept uh, for a couple of hours. That's it. Why? Because I wanted to get home. Because there was a desire to do something. And, and, and a desire to be somewhere. 
And I was sick and tired of being in a car. And I wanted to be back with my family. And I have a new daughter that I really haven't seen except for, you know, maybe I've seen for the first, you know, the, the first couple of days of her life. I, I saw my daughter for, for like three or four days before I had to travel on this trip. Uh, and, and, then, and then I saw her for a couple of more days in the middle of this trip. And I really don't want to be on this trip. I had a passion for something. And it, I was able to overcome the natural desire to sleep for three days. Passion for something overcomes. What did David have a passion for? Well, we're going to look at very briefly a couple of things David had a passion for. In verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Forget your family for just a moment. That's, that's good. That's important to have passion for. But, but David had a passion for something even higher than that. Even higher than, than, than my newborn daughter. David had a passion for God's name. If we want this to be a successful church, if we want to overcome great obstacles, we have to have a higher passion and have a passion for God's name. How is God's name spoken of in your circles? How is God's name spoken of in your entertainment? How is God's name spoken of? Or do we just get used to it? Do we just get used to the disrespect of God's name and it, it's nothing to us anymore? Have a passion for God's name. Israel had gotten used to it over these periods of days and weeks to where they could just sit there and listen to this Philistine talk down about God. They got desensitized to it. Do not get desensitized to the way God's name is used. Get a passion for God's name. And when, when people use God's name, God damn it. You don't like that when you hear it in a sermon, do you? That's, you, that's, that's, you're, not, you're not supposed to say that, Andrew. But you hear it all the time. And you do nothing. That's an opportunity to say, you know, I, I believe in God. And those are hurtful words. That's disrespectful. This is an opportunity to speak to someone. Not, not, not to speak and go cut off their heads. But this is an opportunity to bring up your faith. Have a passion for God's name. And the second thing we're going to look at. One more passion. Verse 26. <clears throat> He says, David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Have a passion for God's people and his perspective. David looked at it the way God would look at it. He's like, listen, these people are disrespecting God's people. What do you think God thinks about that? Have a passion for the way that God looks at things. We look at things from the way it affects us so often. How does this affect me? Well, not so much. Okay, then I can handle it. Eh, it's not a big deal. What did David see? David did not see a giant. I mean, maybe in that initial fear he did. But David did not look and see a guy who was nine foot seven. That's not what he saw. He saw God's 
people being humiliated, and therefore what he saw was he saw God being humiliated. He felt what God felt. Who is this guy that he should do this to God? We need to retrain ourselves to feel not the insults, and not whatever it is that the world does to me, but to have a passion for the way that God feels for things. And that will move us out of our chair. Internal passion is not our only reserve. We know that these things were done with miracles, that David over, overcame with supernatural power. David's passion got him started, but God does the heavy lifting. Understand that. And that's no less true today. We have a Holy Spirit inside of us, but, but we do need to supply some of our own spirit, some of our own energy, and bring some of that just naturally to it. And God will do the heavy lifting. You have assistance. But at some point, I do have to engage myself into this. God's not going to do it all for me. What do I choose to see, though? This is important. What I choose to see will determine my passion. It will determine my action. Do I choose to see a personal slight and go, no, that's not so bad. I, I, I can live with that. Or do I, do I feel that God is being slighted because it's a little bit harder for me to live with God being slighted, with God being insulted. That's harder. But I want you to go back out as we leave here today and ask yourself the question that David asked, because it's perhaps one of the most important phrases in this entire text that we read. It's one of the most important things, and I haven't mentioned it yet. This question will determine what we do. David asks his brothers. When they try to limit him and look down on him and, 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 and hinder him and shame him from doing anything that would make them look bad by comparison... David asked them a question. This is the question I leave you with as we're going to stand and sing. Is there not a cause? Is there not something to fight for? Is there not something to get passionate about in your world? Where you live, is there not a cause?